This is a When Walls Can Talk network podcast. Hello, listeners. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to take a moment to share a recent review that really warmed my heart and gave me all the warm and fuzzies. A listener wrote very recently in the past week, I stumbled across Jeremy's podcast, and I'm so glad I did. From paranormal to tarot, occult, and more, everything I love. His voice is so beautiful, thank you, calming, and it's easy to get immersed into the topic of each episode. I'm only on season two, episode 12 right now, but I'll be caught up by the end of the week. Keep doing great things. Well, thank you so much for this feedback. Um, Just a reminder, I'll be highlighting reviews at the beginning of each episode. So let us know what you're enjoying most about the podcast. Your words and the words of all of our listeners mean the world to me and they truly fuel this passion behind each and every episode. I have huge plans ahead for the entirety of the When Walls Can Talk podcast space. I've created a brand new business strategy and business plan for the entirety of this year as a direct result of my participation at the Podcast Movement 2023 convention and big things are on the horizon. Exciting announcements coming very shortly about a brand new secret project I've been working on in the background uh, for all you fans of serialized true crime shows like um, Serial or S-Town or anything like that. I have something just for y'all. So keep an ear out and yeah, let's take over the world. Now, let's get started. This episode contains discussions of a sexual and adult nature. Listener discretion is strongly advised. In the heart of Butte, Montana, the rhythmic clatter of horse-drawn carriages on cobblestones, intertwining with the boisterous laughter of miners, their faces streaked with the day's toil and tales of underground treasures. Dimly lit rooms, veiled in mystery, whispered secrets of forbidden rendezvous and clandestine affairs. The soft, golden glow of gas lamps painted ethereal shadows on the streets, creating a dance of light and dark. Each alleyway, doorway, and hidden nook held a story, a promise, beckoning the curious and the brave into a world where every corner hinted at the unknown and the allure of a time long past. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of When Walls Can Talk, the podcast. Tonight, we're not just traveling to a place, but to a moment in history, suspended between the pages of time. We journey to Butte, Montana, a town that once pulsed with the heartbeat of the American frontier, where dreams were as vast as the open sky. Amidst this backdrop stands a building, unassuming at first glance, yet pulsating with tales that have spanned generations. The Dumas Brothel. A place where passion met despair, where hopes intertwined with regrets, and where, some say, the past refuses to remain silent. But as we stand at the threshold of this establishment, preparing to step into its haunted halls, I invite you to pause and reflect. How different are we, really? from the patrons that once frequented the Dumas brothel. In an age of digital connections and fleeting interactions, have we retained the essence of genuine human connection? Or have we, too, become ghosts, drifting through a world that's increasingly disconnected? Tonight, as we peel back the layers of the Dumas brothel, we'll not only explore its rich tapestry of stories, but also hold up a mirror to our own souls. We'll journey through corridors where time seems to stand still, where echoes of laughter and tears reverberate, and where the line between the living and the departed is, as always, tantalizingly thin. So, as we delve into the past, let's also journey inward, asking ourselves, how much have we truly evolved since the days when the Dumas brothel was at its zenith? Are we so different from those who once walked its halls, seeking solace, companionship, or perhaps an escape from their own realities. I'm Jeremy Haig, and this is When Walls Can Talk.
throughout the ages, man has repeated the same earnest saying, more of a question really, or perhaps even a plea, if these walls could talk. But what if they do, and always have? Perhaps their stories, memories, and messages are all around us, if only we would take the moment to listen. On this podcast, we reinvestigate legends and tales of the past and allow the echoes of their lessons to live on once again, informing us, educating us, and sharing new and unique insight into the inner workings of the paranormal and spiritual world. Will you dare to listen? This is When Walls Can Talk, the podcast. Butte, Montana, 1890. The air is rich with possibility. The copper mines, veins of prosperity running deep beneath the earth, have turned this town into a beacon for those seeking fortune. And where there's fortune, there's a yearning for more than just material wealth. Enter the Dumas brothel. A place where mines, their hands still stained with the grime of their labor, could find a momentary escape. The Dumas wasn't just a house of pleasure, it was a sanctuary, a place where the burdens of the day could still be set aside, if only for a few stolen moments. The Dumas was a microcosm of Butte's citizenship, three levels of opulence, each telling its own tale to its own status of listener. The basement, its dark tunnels leading directly from the mines was a haven for those who sought anonymity. The main floor, a realm for the middle class, and the second floor, a sanctuary for Butte's elite. But as I researched these halls, I couldn't help but wonder, in our modern age, with the world at our fingertips, have we lost something? The Dumas brothel was more than just a place of business, really. It was a testament to the human need for connection. Today, we swipe left or right, seeking that elusive match. But back then, in the dimly lit rooms of the Dumas, connections were forged face to face, soul to soul. There was no hiding behind filters or witty bios. It was raw, real, and undeniably human. I often find myself pondering, as I delve into the history of this place, what would the patrons of the Dumas think of our modern world? Would they envy our digital age, or would they pity us for losing the art of genuine human interaction? Looking at old photographs of the Dumas, faces from a bygone era stare back at me, and I'm reminded of the fleeting nature of time. The Dumas brothel stands as a monument to a different era, a time when human connection was sought in the most intimate of settings. I can't shake the feeling that we, in our quest for progress, might have left behind something precious. The simplicity of a touch, the thrill of a stolen glance, the warmth of a genuine smile. Perhaps as we journey through the legends of the Dumas brothel, we might find a mirror reflecting our own yearnings. In a world of constant notifications and endless scrolling, maybe, just maybe, we're all searching for that genuine connection a touchstone to remind us of our shared humanity. So as we delve deeper, I invite you to reflect. In our fast-paced world, have we lost the essence of what it means to truly connect? And if so, can we ever find our way back? To truly understand the world of the Dumas brothel, we first must journey back to the origins of Butte, Montana a place where the promise of prosperity drew souls from every corner, seeking their share of the American dream. Butte began as a mere collection of mining camps in the 1870s. Nestled amidst the Rocky Mountains, this land was rich, not just in beauty, but in mineral wealth. Copper, the lifeblood of the burgeoning industrial age, lay in abundance beneath its surface. As the mines grew, so did the town. By the mid-1880s, Butte was a bustling hub of activity. Dance halls, 
Saloons and gambling houses sprang up, catering to the miners who toiled day and night. East Galena Street, in particular, became the heart of Butte's nightlife, known infamously as the Twilight Zone. Yet amidst this backdrop of revelry and riches, there was a darker side to Butte. The ladies of the line, as they were known, began offering their services on Park Street. As legitimate businesses took over, these women moved south, their presence becoming an integral part of Butte's tapestry. Enter the Nadal brothers, Joseph and Arthur. French Canadians by birth, they saw an opportunity in Butte's thriving red light district. In 1890, on 45 East Mercury Street, they erected a grand establishment, naming it after Delia Nadeau, Joseph's wife. This was the birth of the Dumas brothel. Unlike any other, the Dumas was designed to cater to every stratum of Butte society. Its three levels, each with its own unique ambience, served a myriad of experiences. From the miners seeking solace in the basement after a grueling day, to the elite who frequented the lavishly decorated rooms on the second floor, the Dumas was a microcosm of Butte's diverse populace. But the Dumas was more than just windows and walls. It was a reflection of its place and time, a testament to the human desires and dreams of those who walked its halls. In the heart of Butte, Amidst the cacophony of a booming town, the Dumas brothel stood as a siren song, drawing people into its embrace. What they chose to make from its melodies, well, that was entirely up to them. Labor disputes were a constant thorn in Butte's side. As the mines grew more prosperous, the workers who toiled tirelessly beneath the earth began to demand their fair share. The town became a battleground for workers' rights. Strikes became frequent, with miners demanding better wages, safer working conditions, and recognition of their unions. These disputes often turned violent, with clashes between striking workers and company-hired enforcers becoming a common sight. The tension was palpable, casting a shadow over the town's prosperity. But nothing cast a darker and longer shadow over Butte than the 1917 Speculator Mine disaster. On June 8th of that year, a tragic accident led to the death of 168 miners, making it the deadliest disaster in metal mining history. A misplaced carbide lamp ignited a fire deep within the mine, and the resulting inferno consumed all the oxygen, leaving the trapped miners to suffocate. The town was plunged into mourning. Families lost fathers, sons, and brothers. The disaster was not just a grim reminder of the dangers of mining, but also highlighted the inadequate safety measures in place. The grief was suffocating, and the haunting memory of that fateful day would be forever etched into Butte's history. Amidst this backdrop of labor unrest and tragedy, crime syndicates saw an opportunity. The bustling streets of Butte, with the promise of wealth, became fertile ground for organized crime. Bootleggers, gamblers, and racketeers began to stake their claim, weaving a web of corruption that threatened to engulf the entire town. The once celebrated saloons and dance halls became fronts for illicit activities. The crime lords, with their deep pockets and influence, often went unchecked, further deepening the town's descent into lawlessness. The juxtaposition was stark. On one hand, Butte was a symbol of the American dream, a place where fortunes were made and dreams realized. On the other, it was a town grappling with its demons, trying to find its way out of the darkness that threatened to overshadow its achievements. In many ways, Butte's story is a reflection of the broader American narrative, a tale of ambition and prosperity, but also of struggle and adversity. Progress often comes at a cost, and that beneath the glitz and glamour, there are always stories of sacrifice, resilience, and hope. The tensions that permeated Butte's streets inevitably seeped into the walls of the Dumas brothel. As the town grappled with labor disputes, the haunting aftermath of the speculator mine disaster, and the rise of crime syndicates, 
the Dumas became more than just a sanctuary of pleasure. It transformed into a refuge from the outside world's chaos. For the miners, many of whom bore first-hand witness to the dangers and disputes of the mines, the Dumas offered a brief respite. Their interactions within its confines were likely tinged with a heightened sense of urgency and desperation, a need to grasp onto fleeting moments of intimacy and connection amidst the uncertainties of their daily lives. The weight of collective grief from tragedies like the mine disaster added a somber undertone to their quests for solace. Similarly, the town's elite, who frequented the Dumas's upper levels, were not immune to the town's undercurrents. Their liaisons, usually seen as mere indulgences, might have been charged with the complexities of navigating a town in turmoil. In essence, the Dumas brothel, in the midst of Butte's tumultuous landscape, became a microcosm of the town's broader struggles, with each interaction reflecting the hopes, fears, and tensions of a community on the edge. The Dumas brothel, while a sanctuary for many, was also emblematic of the broader societal attitudes towards women, particularly sex workers during its heyday. Women in the Dumas, and in similar establishments of the era, often found themselves at the intersection of economic necessity and societal disdain. Their profession, though in demand, was stigmatized, and they bore the brunt of society's moral judgments. Fast forward to today, and while we've made strides in recognizing the rights and humanity of sex workers, deeply ingrained prejudices persist. The narrative surrounding sex work remains fraught with judgment and misconceptions. Many still fail to see the women and individuals behind the profession, overlooking their stories, struggles, and aspirations. Instead of being treated as individuals with agency and rights, they are often reduced to mere stereotypes. It's a poignant reflection on our society that, even after a century, we grapple with many of the same issues. The women of the Dumas, like sex workers today, sought dignity, respect, and understanding in a world that often denied them these basic human rights. Their stories challenge us to confront our own biases and to advocate for a world where every individual, regardless of their profession, is treated with the respect and dignity they deserve. Now, if we entertain the possibility of paranormal activity being real, then the Dumas, with its layered history, becomes a prime candidate for such occurrences. Every corner of the brothel has witnessed the full spectrum of human emotion, from the euphoria of a miner finding solace after a grueling day, to the despair of a woman yearning for a life beyond the confines of her profession. The intense labor disputes, the haunting aftermath of the 1917 speculator mine disaster, and the underbelly of crime syndicates that thrived in Butte streets all added to the charged atmosphere. Such intense emotional imprints, some believe, could leave behind residual energies or echoes, manifesting as what we term paranormal activity. Moreover, the treatment of women, especially the sex workers of the Dumas, was fraught with complexities. Their daily lives were a blend of resilience, defiance, vulnerability, and hope. If spirits are indeed the remnants of unresolved emotions or unfinished business, then the Dumas, with its tales of dreams unfulfilled and lives cut short, provides ample reason for such spectral presences. The very walls of the brothel seem to whisper tales of longing, love, despair, and hope. In this context, the recounted experiences of visitors and paranormal investigators become not just tales of the supernatural, but poignant reminders of the very real, very human stories that once unfolded within the Dumas. As the Dumas brothel flourished, so too did the dark underbelly of Butte society. Secret tunnels, hidden rooms, and the price of pleasure, but what was the real cost? In today's world, where sex work is still stigmatized and debated, what lessons can we learn from the Dumas brothel's complex history? 
1953, Monroe Fry penned a description of Butte that would forever solidify its reputation during the era. He wrote of the women of Butte, saying, The girls range in age from jailbait to battle-axe. Day or night, they were always ready, tapping on windows, signaling their availability. Fry didn't mince words when he labeled Butte as one of the three most wide-open towns in the nation. While the other two, Galveston and Phoenix City, thrived on the patronage of military men, Butte's red-light district was sustained by its very own, the miners and the locals. This was a town where vice wasn't just presented, but flourished in broad daylight. The women of Butte's red-light district weren't just providers of pleasure— they were savvy entrepreneurs, adapting and evolving their trade amidst social changes and reforms. Their fines, issued from law enforcement, often seen as a cost of doing business, swelled the city's treasury. And the local businesses? They thrived on the patronage of these women. But beyond the economic contributions, these women played a more insidious role in the grand scheme of Butte's sociopolitical landscape. The powerful Anaconda Copper Mining Company, the behemoth that dominated Butte, had a vested interest in keeping the miners distracted. And what better way than through the allure of the red-light district? Miners, engrossed in the pleasures of the night, were less likely to rally against the company's stronghold. In essence, the women of the Dumas brothel and their counterparts across Butte were unwitting pawns in a larger game of power and control. Reflecting on this, I can't help but draw parallels to our world today. How often are we, too, distracted by the allure of instant gratification, missing the bigger picture? The women of the Dumas brothel, in their pursuit of survival, inadvertently served the interests of the powerful. And today, as debates rage on about the rights and roles of sex workers, we must ask ourselves, are we truly any different? Do we still use and stigmatize these workers, all while benefiting from their existence in some form or another? The Dumas Brothel, Butte's last standing and longest-running parlor house, was a cornerstone of the town's evolving socio-economic landscape. Its architecture, a curious collection of eras and styles, displays the complex histories of a town in flux. The opulent suites on the second floor where the city's elite, the so-called Copper Kings, once reveled in luxury, remain untouched. A snapshot of the 1890s. But the ground floor tells a different tale. Once the backdrop for grand soirees, where the evening's entertainment was but a prelude to the night's main event, these spaces were later transformed into cribs. Small, functional rooms where interactions were more straightforward, more transactional. Yet Butte's red-light district wasn't just about the Dumas. The whole region was a sprawling ecosystem of vice. While the Dumas and a few other establishments put on a show of grandeur, the reality for most was far less glamorous. Small brothels and cribs, their air thick with the pungent smell of disinfectants, dotted the landscape. Thieves and opportunists lurked in the shadows, preying on the unsuspecting. The women of the district had their own name for this world, the Burnt District. And the Butte Miner, a newspaper with ties to the powerful mining community, took perverse pleasure in chronicling the district's many misfortunes. As the era of the Copper Kings waned around 1900, the face of Butte's red-light district began to change. The once coy solicitations became more overt. Women dressed in garments, cheekily referred to as shady-go-nakeds, took to lounging in the windows of the district's many establishments. They'd tap on the glass, calling out to potential patrons with a brazenness that spoke of changing times. In this chapter of Butte's history, we see the juxtaposition of opulence and desperation, of grandeur and grit. The Dumas brothel and its counterparts were more than just places of business— they were microcosms of a society grappling with change and the complexities of human nature, of our capacity for both beauty and baseness. In 1902, a special Sunday edition of The Miner shone a spotlight on the red-light district, pulling back the curtain on a world many preferred to ignore. The paper detailed the myriad issues plaguing the district. Rampant solicitation, 
squalid living conditions, the blight that seemed to spread like a stain across the city, scourge of alcoholism, and the open secret of city officials lining their pockets with bribes from the very women they publicly condemned. While some in Butte called for the district to be shut down or relocated, the miner gave voice to both sides of the debate. Yet in doing so, it only served to further cement Butte's reputation as a town where anything goes, drawing even more miners to its streets. But the women of the district weren't passive players in this narrative. They adapted to the ever-changing rules and regulations, paying their fines and rent without complaint. However, when the city demanded they modify their attire and obscure their windows, they fought back. In a move that would have been unthinkable in many other cities, the women of Butte's red light district organized. They cut holes in their blinds, allowing for their faces to peek through and took to the streets in protest. In a town that was a hotbed of labor activism, even the prostitutes found their voice, tapping on their windows in a show of unity. But the city was unmoved. Solicitation from the main streets was banned, leading the women to carve out a new world for themselves, creating the maze-like Pleasant Alley. 1916 saw a brief resurgence in the district's fortunes. As the price of copper soared, the Dumas expanded, with new brick cribs opening onto Pleasant Alley. But this boom was short-lived. Just a year later, in 1917, federal legislation aimed at protecting World War I soldiers from venereal diseases led to the closure of red-light districts across the country. Prostitution in Butte didn't disappear. It merely went underground, both figuratively and literally. The Dumas, like many other establishments, shifted its operations to basement cribs. This descent into the shadows was made all the more poignant in 1990, when the demolition of the nearby copper block unearthed a series of tiny, cave-like cribs. Here, in these dark, dirt-floored chambers, women had plied their trade, a stark reminder of the length society had gone to push them out of sight and out of mind. As the 1930s dawned, Pleasant Alley underwent a transformation, re-emerging as Venus Alley. However, the specter of war once again cast its shadow over the district, and in 1943, federal wartime measures forced its closure. Yet, the spirit of Butte's red-light district proved resilient. After the war, a few determined madams continued their operations from aging, antique-laden houses. The once infamous cribs of Venus Alley, which by then had earned the less-than-flattering moniker Piss Alley from the last of Butte's madams, met their end in 1954, succumbing to the relentless march of progress. The Dumas, however, clung to life, its interiors a time capsule of the 1960s, complete with vibrant orange shag carpeting, a payphone, and a striking red trim. 1968 saw another landmark of Butte's red-light district fall victim to the flames. The Windsor Hotel, which had also functioned as a parlor house, was gutted by arson. Its madam, Beverly Snodgrass, fueled by indignation, took her grievances all the way to Washington, D.C. She alleged that she had been paying a hefty sum to Butte's police force for protection since 1963, and even claimed that uniformed officers often demanded free services from her workers. However, Senator Mike Mansfield deemed it a local issue, leaving Snodgrass without recourse. The 1970s saw the publication of an explosive eight-part series on Butte's Vice in the Great Falls Tribune. The revelation led to the closure of the city's remaining brothels. Only the indomitable Ruby Garrett Madame of the Dumas dared to reopen her doors. Despite the challenges, business continued, with Garrett alleging that she had to pay off the local police for protection. However, after two robberies and a particularly violent holdup in 1981, the spotlight once again turned to the Dumas. Facing charges of federal income tax evasion, Garrett served a six-month sentence and vowed never to reopen the Dumas. It's perhaps poetic, or perhaps just tragic, 
that the closure of the Dumas in 1982 coincided with the end of an era, as Butte's mines shut down for good. Charlie Chaplin, the iconic figure of the silent film era, once remarked that the women of Butte's red light district were the epitome of beauty, treated with unparalleled kindness, and were the most fortunate of their kind. But beneath this veneer of praise, and the district's glittering exterior, lay a starkly contrasting reality. The allure of Butte's red light district was not just its glamour, but the stark dichotomy between its public image and the gritty truths that lay beneath. At the heart of this duality were the women themselves. They navigated a world that celebrated them on the surface, but often marginalized and exploited them behind closed doors. These women, many of whom remain nameless in the annals of history, were the lifeblood of the district, embodying its contradictions and complexities. Today, as one walks the streets of Butte, subtle tributes to these women can still be found. Metal sculptures, crafted by local high school students, stand as silent sentinels, paying homage to the anonymous souls who once walked the brick-paved alleyways of the district. These figures, though inanimate, tell a story of resilience, of women who carved out a space for themselves in a world that was often indifferent to their struggles. The legacy of Butte's prostitutes is not just in these sculptures or in tales of old. Their presence, their stories, and their indomitable spirit are woven into the very fabric of Butte's history. A testament to a city that was, in many ways, defined by its wide-open mythology. As the 20th century progressed, the Dumas brothel, like many establishments of its kind, faced challenges. The crackdowns during the World Wars, driven by concerns over venereal diseases among troops, pushed many such businesses underground, yet the Dumas persisted, rebranding itself, weathering storms and adapting to changing times. The Dumas brothel stands as a testament to the resilience and the tenacity of the women who ran it. These women, navigating a world dominated by men and societal expectations, carved out a space for themselves. Their stories, filled with trials, tribulations, and triumphs, offer a glimpse into the lives of those who operated within the shadows of society. From 1950 to 1955, the Dumas brothel was under the watchful eye of Eleanor Knott, yet Eleanor's tenure at the Dumas was tragically short-lived. Taking over operations in the 1950s, she faced the challenges of running a brothel in a changing world. Legend has it that on a chilling February night in 1955, Eleanor had dreams of starting anew. Her bags were packed, ready for a life away from the Dumas with her lover. But as fate would have it, he never arrived. The dawn brought with it a grim discovery, Eleanor's lifeless body. While the official cause was deemed natural, whispers of a darker truth, a potential suicide, or even murder, echoed through the corridors of the Dumas. Eleanor's story is a poignant reflection of the emotional toll that such a life could exact on its inhabitants. It's easy to imagine the weight of societal judgment, the loneliness, and the challenges she faced. After Eleanor's mysterious demise, the mantle of Madame was taken up by Bonita Farron. Alongside her husband, John, she resided in the second-floor apartment. But tragedy wasn't done with the Dumas, as Bonita succumbed to cancer in 1971. The resilient Ruby Garrett then stepped in, becoming the Dumas's final madam. Ruby's story is one of resilience and adaptability. Having lived in Butte for three decades, she purchased the Dumas in the early 1970s. Under her management, the cost of services rose to $20. However, her tenure was also marred by violence. In 1981, a harrowing robbery saw Ruby brutally attacked. This incident not only scarred her, but also drew the eyes of federal investigators. In 1981, she faced charges of tax evasion, leading to the brothel's closure the following year. 
Despite the legal troubles, Ruby's determination to keep the Dumas operational for as long as she did speaks to her business acumen and her commitment to the establishment. Her story paints a picture of a woman who is both a shrewd businesswoman and a pillar of a bygone community. Beyond these two prominent figures, the Dumas saw a myriad of women pass through its doors. From its inception in the 1890s by French-Canadian brothers Joseph and Arthur Nadeau to its closure in 1982, almost a century later, the brothel was home to countless women, each with her own unique story. For instance, in the early 1900s, the brothel was managed by Madame Grace McGuinness, who had a staff comprised of a servant, a Chinese cook, and four prostitutes. The cost of services during this time was 50 cents, with the women receiving a significant portion of that amount. Reflecting on these stories, it's impossible not to feel a deep sense of respect for these women. They operated in a world that often looked down upon them, yet they persevered, adapting to changing times and societal norms. Their stories are a testament to the human spirit's ability to endure and thrive in the face of adversity. In today's world, where women continue to fight for equality and recognition, the stories of the women of the Dumas brothel serve as a powerful reminder of the strength and resilience of women throughout history. They navigated a challenging landscape, facing societal judgment and legal challenges, yet they carved out a space for themselves and left an indelible mark on history. Yet the past still refuses to rest. After delving into the tangible histories of the women who graced the halls of the Dumas brothel, it's essential to remember that some stories are not bound by the confines of written records or whispered rumors. Some tales transcend the physical realm, echoing in the very walls and air of places like the Dumas. Many claim to have seen the ghostly figure of a woman, suitcase in hand, wandering the halls of the Dumas. One account from a 1970s employee speaks of a chilling encounter. Alone in the building, she watched a woman, suitcase in tow, walk past an upstairs door and descend the staircase. When she went to investigate, the building was eerily empty. Years later, an artist saw inspiration within the Dumas' walls. But instead of her intended artwork, she found herself repeatedly drawn to the face of an unknown woman. Frustrated, she abandoned her work, but one discarded portrait was salvaged. This haunting image depicted a woman in her 40s, adorned with a hat and a mysterious smile. Was this the face of Bonita Farron, or perhaps Eleanor Knott? The true identity remains an enigma, a silent whisper to the past. However, this story may give some insight. There's a question I often get asked. Have spirits ever trailed you home? The answer is a resounding yes. My profession as a psychic sensitive frequently takes me to sites brimming with paranormal energies. It seems Kathleen John experienced the same thing at the Dumas not so long ago. Kathleen John, a psychic from Bozeman, Montana, offers a glimpse into the energies and spirits that might still linger within the Dumas, providing insights that history books might never capture. During a warm Montana summer, Kathleen, driven by her passion for history, often ventured to the state's ghost towns. These silent witnesses to history, with their cemeteries, museums, and age-old structures, served as a bridge to Montana's vibrant past. On one such journey in 2000, she found herself in Butte, standing before the Dumas brothel. At the time, the establishment was under the stewardship of a man named Rudy. Intrigued, she opted for a guided tour, led by the spirited Rachel, who regaled the group with tales of the Dumas' legacy as the longest operating brothel in the U.S. Mining towns, with their rough edges and raw energy, often had a seedy underbelly, and Butte was no different. Yet, the Dumas stands alone today, a silent testament to an era long gone. The tour was an eye-opener for Kathleen. The chill in the air, the dimly lit corners, the floors that groaned with every step, it all added to the mood. But that day, she was there as a history enthusiast. 
The paranormal, it seemed, respected that boundary. Or so she thought. She handed Rachel her card, thinking little of it. But as fate would have it, an unexpected call the very next morning would change everything. The morning after Kathleen's visit to the Dumas, a phone call jolted her. What on earth did you do to my brothel yesterday? You've terrified Rachel. The voice on the other end was none other than Rudy, the proprietor of the Dumas. Taken aback, Kathleen responded. I merely handed her my card. What seems to be the issue? Rudy's voice, a mix of concern and confusion, continued. Rachel called me yesterday evening quite distressed. After you departed, she began hearing peculiar sounds echoing throughout the establishment. She initially thought perhaps a visitor from the tour might have lingered behind. He paused, collecting his thoughts. But this morning, she found the place in complete disarray. Hats that were once adorning the walls were now neatly aligned on the floor. Pictures had been taken down, and the doors that had been securely locked were ajar. And amidst all this chaos, your psychic business card was conspicuously placed on my desk. What's going on? He ended with a chuckle, hinting at his playful nature. As their conversation unfolded, Kathleen realized that Rudy, despite his jesting demeanor, was well acquainted with the Dumas's spectral residence. By the end of their chat, Rudy extended an invitation for Kathleen to return, this time to delve deeper into the mysteries of the Dumas. Little did she know, this would mark the beginning of her close encounters with the establishment's ethereal occupants. A few weeks after the intriguing phone call, Kathleen, accompanied by a pair of intrepid companions, made her way back to Butte. The allure of the Dumas, coupled with Rudy's promise of exclusive access to its hidden corners, was irresistible, and I don't blame her. That day, Rudy, with his characteristic joviality, played the role of their guide, granting them unrestricted exploration of the establishment. One particular area that deeply resonated with Kathleen's psychic sensitivities was the basement. Here, Rudy had uncovered a concealed room, a perfectly preserved crib from a bygone era. This small chamber, where a prostitute would have once attended to her clientele, was eerily untouched. The sparse furnishings consisted of a bed and a corner sink, yet what truly captivated Kathleen were the artifacts wedged into the wall's crevices. Items like old matchbooks, scraps of paper, and even condoms were layered into these gaps, almost like a timeline of the room's history. The space felt ripe for an archaeological exploration. As Kathleen delved deeper into the room's embrace, she suddenly felt an uncanny sensation, akin to spiderwebs brushing against her neck and shoulders. Reflexively, she swiped at the void, puzzled by the absence of any tangible webs, but then, a fleeting shadow caught the edge of her vision, a solid, dark figure darting from one end of the room to the other. She let out an involuntary gasp, only to hear her friend whisper in hushed tones, I saw that too. Rudy's laughter echoed in the room. With a knowing grin, he shared that such occurrences... Shadowy figures, orbs, and even full apparitions were commonplace in the Dumas' basement. Throughout the day in that basement, the group encountered a series of eerie ev- The group encountered a series of eerie events that mirrored Kathleen's initial experience. It wasn't just the typical unease one might feel in a basement, with its low ceilings and shadowy corners. This was a different kind of fear. One that someone as seasoned as Kathleen couldn't easily dismiss. Yet the basement wasn't the only hotspot of paranormal activity in the Dumas. The madam's room on the top floor was another. This room, with its vintage wallpaper and a bed reminiscent of the early 1900s, exuded an opulence that seemed out of place in a brothel. Dominating the room was a portrait of a woman, displayed prominently on an easel. Her appearance was striking porcelain skin, delicate facial features, and piercing eyes that seemed to hold countless stories. Contrary to the typical attire one might associate with a woman of her profession, she was dressed modestly, with a high-collared dress slightly open at the neck. 
Her teal blue hat, adorned with feathers, added an air of sophistication. This was Bonita, and her presence in the painting was commanding. Despite the room's grandeur, an overwhelming sense of melancholy permeated the space. It was as if the walls held on to the heartaches of the past, echoing them back to the present. On more than one occasion, Kathleen thought she heard the faint sound of a woman's sobs. Adding to the room's ethereal ambience was a golden birdcage suspended from a post. Every so often, it would sway gently, as though nudged by an invisible presence. After the intense experiences at the Dumas, Kathleen returned home, hoping for a peaceful night's sleep. However, the spirits of the Dumas weren't quite done with her. At 1 a.m., she was jolted awake by what felt like her cat pouncing on her foot. But as she sat up to shoo the feline away, she remembered that her cat was outside that night. That's when she saw her. Bonita, the woman from the painting, sitting at the end of her bed, adorned in her signature teal blue hat. The realization sent shivers down Kathleen's spine. Here she was, face to face with the very spirit she had encountered at the Dumas. Despite her initial shock, Kathleen's assertive nature took over. She had one rule in her home, no ghosts allowed in her bedroom. But Bonita, with her strong-willed demeanor, seemed unbothered by this rule. She spoke with an air of authority. Please tell Rudy that the Dumas will be okay. Rudy will save the Dumas. Tell him Bonnie said so. Her gaze was intense, almost piercing as she locked eyes with Kathleen. In a mix of disbelief and curiosity, Kathleen reached out to touch the apparition, but in an instant, Bonita vanished. All that remained was the indentation on the bed where she had sat and a faint, lingering scent of a lady's perfume. The encounter was brief, but its message was clear. The Dumas and its spirits had a story that was far from over. The morning after her spectral encounter, Kathleen reached out to her friend who had joined her on the visit to the Dumas. She needed validation, a touchstone to reality after such an otherworldly experience. As she recounted the details of her midnight visitor, her friend's reaction was immediate and filled with disbelief. Remember the teal-colored hat we saw in the display case? The same one in Bonita's painting? Her friend exclaimed. The connection was undeniable. Bonita, the spirit from the Dumas, had indeed visited Kathleen. Feeling the sense of urgency, Kathleen dialed Rudy's number. She needed to relay Bonita's message, but more importantly, she sought clarity. What did Bonita mean when she said, Rudy will save the Dumas? What impending doom was the Dumas facing? Rudy's response was heavy with emotion. He explained the legal quagmire the Dumas was embroiled in, a lawsuit that threatened to strip him of the building he had poured his heart, soul, and finances into. Kathleen, channeling the confidence and assurance of Bonita's message, told Rudy, Rudy, you will save the Dumas. Time proved Bonita's prophetic words to be true. A few months later, the legal tangles unraveled in Rudy's favor. The Dumas, with all its history, memories, and spirits, remained under his guardianship. The spectral messages from the past had, in its own mysterious way, provided hope and assurance for the future. Kathleen's bond with the Dumas brothel deepened as time went on. Under the stewardship of Michael and Travis, its future owners, the spirits within the Dumas seemed more active than ever. These two, dedicated to preserving the brothel's rich history, embarked on renovation projects and began offering historical tours. Yet as the presence of the living increased within the Dumas, so too did the echoes of its past inhabitants. A particular episode of Sci-Fi Channel's Haunted Collector, titled Haunted Brothel, caught Kathleen's attention. The show delved into the paranormal mysteries of the Dumas, presenting compelling evidence, video footage of objects moving on their own accord, 
furniture shaking without any visible cause, and EVP audio recordings that seemed to capture ethereal voices. Several members of the show's team recounted their own personal experiences, from witnessing shadowy figures to feeling sudden, cold drafts. Some have even claimed to feel the touch of an unseen entity. Though the Dumas brothel had officially ceased operations in 1892, it became very clear to Kathleen that many of its past residents lingered on. Their stories, emotions, and very presence remained, resonating through the corridors. For those who dare to explore the Dumas today, there's an intriguing, albeit slightly unsettling, possibility. One of its spirits might just decide to accompany you home. The Dumas brothel, with its creaking floors and whispered tales, stands as a dark and haunted time capsule of a bygone era. An era marked by the mingling of affluence and despair, of dreams realized and shattered. Together, we've encountered stories of women who walked its halls, of the men who frequented its rooms, and of the society that both condemned and sustained it. But beyond the bricks and mortar, beyond the chilling encounters and spectral apparitions, lies a deeper narrative. It's a narrative that prompts us to ask, what does it mean to truly understand a place and its past? How do we reconcile the allure of the paranormal? with the very real stories of those who lived and died within these walls. The Dumas brothel, in all its haunting beauty, challenges us to confront the complexities of history. It beckons us to remember that behind every shadow, every unexplained sound, is a human story. Eleanor Knott, Ruby Garrett, Bonita, and countless unnamed women who graced its rooms were not mere specters. They were real individuals with dreams, desires, fears, and hopes. Their lives, intertwined with the socio-economic fabric of Butte, reflect a broader narrative of survival, resilience, and the quest for agency in a world that often denied them a voice. Yet as we've delved into the stories of these women, we've also been prompted to reflect on the societal constructs that shaped their lives. The Dumas, in its prime, was a product of its time, a reflection of societal attitudes towards sex work, morality, and the role of women in the world. The women of the Dumas, many of whom faced unimaginable challenges, navigated a world that was often hostile to their very existence. Their stories, while unique, resonate with the experiences of countless others across time and space. As listeners of When Walls Can Talk, we are called upon to not just be passive consumers of these tales, but to engage with them critically. To ask ourselves, how do societal norms and values shape our perceptions of places like the Dumas? How do we reconcile the thrill of the paranormal with the very real human stories that underpin them? And most importantly, how do we ensure that the voices of those who walked these halls are not lost to time? In the words of James Baldwin, people are trapped in history, and history is trapped in them. This quote resonates deeply with our exploration of the Dumas. The spirits that are said to haunt its quarters may very well be trapped by the weight of their own histories, by the societal judgments and stigmas that marked their lives. As we reflect on the Dumas and its spectral inhabitants, let us remember that understanding the context of history is crucial. It allows us to see beyond the surface, to empathize with those who came before us, and to recognize the inherent dignity and worth of every individual. In a world that often prioritizes sensationalism over substance, When Walls Can Talk seeks to bridge the gap. It reminds us that places like the Dumas are more than just haunted houses. They are repositories of human experience. By understanding and empathizing with the stories of those who inhabited them, we not only honor their memories, but also challenge ourselves to confront our own biases and preconceptions. In the end, the Dumas brothel stands as a poignant reminder of the complexities of the human experience. It challenges us to look beyond the paranormal 
and to see the very real human stories that lie beneath. For in understanding these stories, we not only honor the past, but also pave the way for a more empathetic and understanding future. Another chapter ends in our When Walls Can Talk journey. And I want to share a little quick reflection with you all as an additional expression of my gratitude. Since the Bobby Mackey episode, my listens and downloads have quadrupled. And I think that is a reflection of the fact that I have found my voice in a new way for this podcast going forward. I joke about this with my friends that I literally think I'm going to look at when walls can talk in two time periods, Uh, like BC, which is basically before Bobby Mackey and AD, which is after. I think I found a way to implement more personal reflections, personal thoughts into these episodes in a way that's just a little bit more engaging and a little bit more personal. And I hope you all are enjoying it. I hope you enjoy the slightly new tone that I found for the show. To this point, When Walls Can Talk has been a solitary passion project supported by my family and friends, and I really have taken on all the research, marketing, recording, and editing alone. And with the aftermath of everything that went down at the Podcast Movement Convention, which I just cannot say enough good things about, I think that will be changing very quickly. I want to make this my career for the rest of my life. Telling stories, sharing voices of those who are lost to time, and presenting reflections on our society and our world that are both engaging and challenging. Whether it be here on When Walls Can Talk, the podcast, or on my sister show, Cinematic Secrets, The Dark Side of the Silver Screen, which will be returning on a bi-weekly cadence on September 6th, I want to approach this world of podcasting and really infuse my own personal views on the world, and I hope that that's something that you find engaging and interesting. So for everyone that's continued to listen and contributed to this huge spike in listeners that have happened lately, I cannot thank you enough. If you're new to the show, hi everybody, welcome to our journey. My name is Jeremy Haig, I'm so proud to be your host and paranormal guide through these stories with you. And I hope you stay with me for the rest of our journey, however long or short that may be. When Walls Can Talk is dedicated to a weekly rhythm now, and we'll be releasing every Saturday morning at 5 a.m. Mountain Standard Time, so that it's available for you when you wake up on Saturday morning. If you found any value or learned something new in this show, today or during any episode, I ask you kindly to please let us know in the reviews. It truly makes a huge difference in how we show up in the podcast algorithm, whether that be on Spotify, Apple Music, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. I will be proud to shout out your thoughts and reflections with the rest of our listeners at the beginning of each and every episode going forward for as long as I have new reviews. So I want to hear from you. I want to know what you like, what you enjoy, what stories particularly speak to you, and what stories you would love to hear about. If you have your own paranormal experiences that you would like to be a part of the When Walls Can Talk journey, please email those to me at jeremy at 
I will be happy to also add you to my email list, which will let you know whenever new episodes come out, as well as when the launch of our monthly publication, The Spirit Box, uh, those will be released in uh, coming up in November. So I'll be happy to add you to that. But if I receive enough stories from personal listeners, I will start releasing listener stories as bonus episodes as well. Currently, I just have not had enough engagement and response to that to warrant it yet. But if you have something you would like to say or to share, send those to me and I will turn them into either little immersive mini-sodes telling your story or just do listener story episodes and read them uh, straight out on air. Let me know what you would prefer and yeah. Follow us on Instagram at when walls can talk with underscores for spaces. And if you're interested in additional insights about this episode, you can visit our blog, www.whenwallscantalktarot.com. So long, and I will catch you next week for a brand new episode of When Walls Can Talk, the podcast, where paranormal mysteries and dark histories collide. So long. <laughs>